The Revelation of John is a remarkable book and after almost a year of looking at it we're coming towards the climax and conclusion of John's message as we enter the final two chapters. Now before we get into chapter 21 let me remind you of a number of things that have to be kept in mind. Firstly this book is relevant for us today it isn't to be confined to first century Christianity, although there's a lot that could be directly identified with that past period. Nor is it to be limited to events that are yet to be, although it does describe events that are still in the future, such as the return of Christ and the glorification of the church. No, this book was written to encourage and challenge God's children now and through all the ages to keep us going, to keep us persevering, to keep our eyes fixed on the glory of our Saviour and the wonder of our salvation. And secondly, we need to remember that this book was written during a visionary experience out of which John seeks to communicate not just meaning but also feeling. In that sense we could liken it to an impressionist painting rather than a photograph. Beware therefore when you come to interpret it of a literalism that was never intended. And thirdly we need to remember that John was writing in a well-known literary style of the day known as apocalyptic. And he was drawing upon many passages in the Old Testament as well as contemporary apocalyptic literature that abounded at that time. In other words, although its real meaning was hidden from many, those who knew their Bible were able to understand what was being written. They got the significance and meaning of the numbers and images that were being used. You see, what you need when coming to this book is not a great imagination, but a great understanding of Scripture. And then fourthly, we can see how John was describing the period between the first and second coming of Christ from a variety of angles. From chapter 6 onwards we have a series of parallel views that develop in intensity. Of course we're familiar with this sort of thing from the coverage of sport on TV. You know how it goes. They, they so show the same scene, maybe it's a, a goal, uh, and then they replay it from a number of different camera angles. An overhead view, one from the stands, high in the stands, one from the camera covering the offside angles, one from the camera behind the goal, one from the camera that's focusing upon a particular player, one from the handheld camera, and then they replay them one after the other to build up the overall picture of what's happened. Well, that's what we've got in Revelation. It's not one chronological line, but a series of repeated views from different angles. And those scenes culminate in chapter 20 as God completes his judgment of his enemies. Over the preceding few chapters, we've seen that Babylon, representative of human rebellion, is brought down. And then the beast and the false prophet, those things which were representative of godless government and godless religion, they're judged. 
and then even Satan and death are finally dealt with. So what's left? What lies beyond that judgment day? What's God's new kingdom going to look like? Well, it's introduced in the first verse of the next chapter, uh, as you'll have seen from the scriptures. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And for the final couple of chapters, John draws together a number of biblical pictures which try to describe the wonder and the glory of what lies ahead. He uses four main images of a city, a bride, a temple and a garden to try and picture the stunning perfection of God's new kingdom. And Liam will deal with these in more detail in coming weeks. But our job this evening is to look at the first eight verses of chapter 21, which set the scene for what's to follow. For what's being revealed to John is that this glorious kingdom will be completely free from all the effects of sin and rebellion. Everything that spoils or defiles will be completely removed and dealt with. Now, we're going to break these verses up in four ways. See, there's two statements to be understood, two descriptions to be savoured, two truths to be anticipated, and two groups to be identified. So let's begin with the first of those. There are two statements to be understood, two statements to be understood. And they're both here in the first verse where John tells us he saw a new heaven and a new earth and that there was no longer any sea. In fact, John is extensively quoting from the glorious vision that Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 65 verses 17 to 25. Now, we don't have time to read it here, but why not check it out for yourself later this week? So what is this new heaven and new earth? Is God going to totally destroy this creation and start again with something completely new? Or will he radically renew the creation that exists? Well, there are Bible texts that point to both viewpoints. And this is certainly not something for Christians to divide over. But from what I can see, especially in the light of what Paul writes in Romans 8.21, where creation is longing for liberation and freedom. It would seem that God is going to radically renew the existing creation, making it completely free from the traces and effects of sin and brokenness. Now, this really makes very little difference in practice, except those who think that God is going to completely destroy the existing creation are more likely not to worry about how the world is being used and abused rather than others who see that we have an ongoing stewardship responsibility to the creation. But, but what about this thing about there being no sea? Does that mean there's going to be no oceans? For if it does, that will disappoint many who have fond memories of lying on the beach with sandals and sunscreen and sangria. Well, once again, we have to say this is an image that shouldn't be taken literally. It's a picture. It's a symbol of something else. 
You see, for the Israelites, the sea represented evil and chaos. And even here in Revelation, this book that we've been going through, the beast emerges from the sea. And by saying there is no longer any sea, it's another way of expressing the truth that in God's new kingdom, there'll be no more chaos or conflict, no more evil or rebellion. It means peace for all eternity. And as we're seeing, that's the theme of these opening eight verses. So we've seen that there are two statements to be understood. Secondly, I want us to notice there are two descriptions to be savoured, two descriptions to be savoured. For in verse 2, we come across the image of the holy city and the beautifully dressed bride. Have a look again at your Bible and what it says there in verse 2, where it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, once again, these apocalyptic images are packed with biblical meaning. The old Jerusalem, you see, had been a place of disappointment and failure. In one sense, the exiled Israelites were still anticipating the true Jerusalem. They ached to be properly home. And now, as John writes, referencing Isaiah's imagery in Isaiah 35, he does so against the backdrop of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Roman armies in 70 AD. But here's the new Jerusalem, the real deal. The place where sacrifice and ritual are no longer required. The place of safety, the place where deepest hopes are realised, the place of relationships and interactions, a place, dare I say, where Covid won't keep one believer from another. It's, it's home! And you see it's called the Holy City. This place, in keeping with the theme of these verses, is totally free from sin and rebellion. It's a holy city. And this holiness is picked up in the imagery of a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Actually, it's such a familiar image for Bible writers. Jeremiah and Hosea especially speak about Israel in this way, the bride and the husband, at times the unfaithful bride. And this wonderful picture in Revelation describes that final day when the church will be presented to Christ as a pure and holy bride. In fact, if you just turn back a few pages to Revelation 19 verses 6 to 8, you read these words, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So what's the bride wearing? What's this beautiful wedding dress? What's this fine linen which is bright and clean? Well, although the NIV translation is not as clear as it could be, it's apparent that the church, God's people, are clothed in a righteousness provided for them by God himself. My friends, this is nothing less than the obedience and perfection of Jesus. This is why the church is described as a beautifully dressed bride. And what will be true in reality then is something that should be reflected in the church now. 
we're not to be a company of people who go chasing after the latest fad or thrill. We're not to be characterised by careless living or lax behaviour. We mustn't be those who prostitute ourselves after the tawdry offerings of this passing world. We're to keep our eyes fixed on the groom. For that day is coming when all God's people will be presented to Christ free from sin, clothed in his righteousness and anticipating a closeness and intimacy that nothing in this passing world could prepare you for. So we've seen, first of all, that there are two statements to be understood, then that there are two descriptions to be savoured. Thirdly, I want us to notice there are two truths to be anticipated, two truths to be anticipated. Have a look now at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. You see, here are the truths that will mark this new kingdom. God will eternally dwell with his people and he will lavish his blessings upon them. Do you remember how it used to be that God made himself known to his people within the temple and tabernacle and then only to one representative and, and that in the curtained off inner sanctuary? But now in the new kingdom God dwells with all his people. In fact as we'll see next week this is made even clearer there in verse 22 where John writes, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You see, God's there with his people forever. This had always been the heartache of true Israelites. It's what Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 25 and what Jeremiah and Ezekiel pointed to. And it's what the heart of each one of us aches for in our best moments, to dwell with God to be free from the sin that separates and spoils, to be free from shame, to live with him, having the confidence of a love child. And all the blessings that will be there. Because there is no more sin, because its effects will have finally be dealt with, then there will be no more weeping. Sadness has gone, regret has disappeared, grieving is no more, bodily decay and weakness are unknown. Hearing aids, glasses, walking sticks, painkillers, antidepressants, chemotherapy, A&E departments, CT scans, undertakers, all gone, all gone. And our deepest thirst for joy will be satisfied a million times over. What we've seen and sensed and ached for will be ours in Christ without end. Listen again to verse 5. 
He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, do you get it? These words are trustworthy and true. But finally, I want us to notice there are two groups to be identified. For surely this is the most important question we could ask. Who will be able to experience this glory? And who will be excluded? Well, again, just turn your eyes down to verses 7 to 8. It says, Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So who inherits all this? Who's going to heaven? Who's going to experience the glory of Christ's new kingdom? Well, the text makes it clear. It's the victorious. And who are the victorious? Are they the super spiritual people who read 10 chapters of the Bible every day, pray for at least an hour, give 20% of their income to the church and attend every church meeting possible? People who never have doubts, never fall into sin, never fall out with others. Well, thank God, that's not who's being referred to. Actually, the phrase victorious crops up repeatedly in Revelation, especially in the letters to the churches that we saw back in chapters 2 and 3. And it means those who persevere, those who keep going, those who hold on to Christ, those who rest all their hope in him alone. For our only hope is Christ. It's only through his atoning work on Calvary's cross that sin-stained sinners can be made clean. It's only as we see our total inability to rescue ourselves and we recognise his perfect, sufficient, complete work in taking our sin and offering us his righteousness and obedience. So do you see Jesus as your only hope and joy? Is he the one you rest in and rely upon? For if you do, then you'll keep going, you'll keep persevering, you'll keep coming back time and time again to his wonderful grace. That's why I think this pandemic is shaking down the church. You see, it's easy to keep going when the crowd is around, when the social networks are operating, when routines of church attendance have been ingrained, but when you don't have those support structures in place, it actually exposes where your heart is. Let me ask you, do you still hunger after him and long to hear his word and model his grace? Or do you find your comfort elsewhere? It's a good diagnostic tool to see where your heart is and whether Christ is indeed your Lord and Saviour. Oh, that we would be a persevering people looking to Christ in every situation. But what if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ? What if you've never come to him for the forgiveness of your sin? What if your hope for heaven is placed in something or someone else? Then can I tell you as carefully and lovingly and seriously as I can on the authority of the Bible, 
you will not go to heaven. How can you? We've seen that there is no sin in heaven, that it's a holy place. So how could you possibly go there? Listen again to verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. But I'm not like that, you say. I'm not a murderer. I don't practice magic arts. I'm not vile. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a nice person, certainly better than many others I know. I'm sure God will let me in. But you are mentioned in this verse. You're described as the unbelieving. You don't believe in the work of Jesus for sinners. You don't believe in the seriousness of your sin before a holy God. You don't believe in the justice of God. You don't believe in the warnings and entreaties of Scripture. You're described there. And your destination is not the glory of God's presence, but the fiery lake of burning sulphur. Now, I don't know what that fully means, but I do know that the Bible never exaggerates. My friends, I want you to get right before God and get ready for heaven. I want you to come to the only one who can deal with your sin. I want you to know heaven's joys for all eternity so we can bask together in the wonderful grace that's made it possible. Come this evening. Come where you are. Call upon the mercy and grace of God. Throw yourself upon him for the forgiveness of your sins. When you do that, here is this glorious gospel that so many of us have responded to and, and God's grace has captured our hearts. And we have this confidence, we have this hope, not in what we have done, but in what Jesus has done for failures like us. Oh, how I long that you would come to Jesus. We're going to sing a song together now. As you sing it, listen to its words. Don't get carried away by the tune so that you ignore what is being said. But we're going to sing together. There is a higher throne. And may these truths impact you right now where you are.